The other day, uh, I stumbled across an image that arrested me. Um, some of our married friends from seminary, uh, they now serve at a church in Oklahoma, and he's a pastor, and she's in a, an MFA program uh, at University of Oklahoma, and she posted just on Instagram a, a detailed shot of something she'd been working on. Maybe you can't see it that well on this, but it, it, the scale of it is it's about four foot tall and 12 foot wide uh, piece of paper, and it's a visual family tree um, that, that she had done. I think there's a detail. Yeah. And uh, she described it, uh, I, I think the size is just really cool and impressive to start, but she described it as, as, as just her drawing one continuous line uh, for the whole thing. So I don't know how long that would take to do that. And, it, and she described it as one continuous line, weak or broken in some areas. And that just stuck with me, that description. I thought, isn't that so poignant? For each of our own stories, even as we live in this kind of everyday ordinariness of our lives, we strive and we struggle, and sometimes we feel like the pencil is grinding to a halt <laughs> or faintly leaving the page. Perhaps you're in a season that feels like an outlier to the rest of your life, like you, you don't recognize where your life is right now compared to where your life has been. Maybe your life feels like it's in full drift, like it's flying off the rails. Maybe despair creeps in and you, you think, I don't belong in the story. It seems like what, whoever was drawing the line up until now was drawing something completely different than what I envisioned. But my friend Corey, her, her sketch reminds us of the surprising connection of it all. The resilience despite the fatigue and the frailty, the coherence, despite the incompleteness, one continuous line, weak and broken in some areas. Perhaps that's exactly what it means to be human. Constrained and reckoning with our sin and our weakness, with our limits and with our fear, all the while continuing to be drawn and knit into something bigger than just our story. And this whole canvas that maybe we can only see a small part of at one time. We don't allow the plot to be bogged down or that pencil lead to be stalled. We just keep going. During this season of waiting and preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus, we've been reading Matthew's family tree, and it's in Matthew's prologue, where John's prologue, the, the Gospel of John, where that is like cosmically epic, like that is like the Star Wars prologue of the Gospels, the word made flesh in the beginning, there's this new creation thing happening, there's no bones about the divine thing that's happening as John reports it. But Matthew starts with kind of an Ancestry.com style genealogy, right? Like so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. Like if this was like the gospel about Matt, it would have Matt's grandfather and great-grandfather all the way up the line. You can't get much more human than that. It would happen that way for all of us. 
if someone, uh, but then, <clears throat> but then we, we, as we read on this, this genealogy, this family tree, we, we read on, we start to trip on these spots where the, they seem like they're snags. We trip on maybe the, the women in the sort or the way this, this family tree kind of jumps the tracks and keeps going down, the, down a different set of rails. Often wild stories like Tamar's or Rahab's, they show us how fragile that story was, the story of God's family. Or maybe Ruth, that gives us, as Sarah said last week so well, if you weren't here, go back and listen to it, that, that Ruth story gives us kind of the rules to performing the improv of love and fidelity in this story. And then a couple lines later, if you read down in Matthew 1, we arrive at Bathsheba. Well, not exactly Bathsheba, rather the wife of Uriah, but we know that that's Bathsheba because we know the story. So straw poll word association, what's the first thing when you hear the name Bathsheba, what's the first thing you think of? We have a sneeze, that's one vote. Yeah. Bathsheba. Okay, what else? Prostitute. What else? No, no one's just going to say baths, right? Like, uh, so I, I'm guessing her her favorability numbers aren't very high in this room, right? Because um, if they said baths, that would at least like skew the averages a little bit, right? Most of us know and remember the way she was brought into the story. Matthew wants us to remember that she didn't become David's wife in some normal way. She was pulled into the story. She was Uriah's wife first. Many of us have funny or embarrassing stories about the way we first came to faith. My personal story has a lot to do with a Baptist church in my town having pretty girls, um, and that's not exactly the most like spiritually inspiring narrative, but... It was an on-ramp to my life of faith nonetheless. Like I hope when I, when I think about and pray for and dream about how Oak Church will be involved in the lives of many people coming to faith, I, I, I hope that's true. I hope it's not that embarrassing. I'm not going to say any more about that. But I do, I do hope when they, when they write their their spiritual autobiographies that there's that there's at least a footnote of like I I met I came to know I experienced the love of Jesus in this community in this place but Bathsheba's on-ramp is perhaps embarrassing but it's not very funny at all it's kind of just downright tragic after all she was Uriah's wife before she became Uriah's widow before she became the mother to a stillborn child before she became the queen mother of Solomon this is like games of thrones game of thrones territory here with queen mothers in throne successions but before all of that she was simply Uriah's wife Despite all, all of our, what we think about when we think about Bathsheba, and that's a good test for Bible stuff, is like, try to write down what you think of when you think of it first. And then go back and see, like, 
am I close to what's really going on here? Despite what we think about Bathsheba, I don't see a whole lot of scriptural evidence that she ever aspired to be anything other than Uriah's wife. So today, we'll read a story of kind of the other end of her life, from the beginning of 1 Kings, and this is the end of David's life, and this is about Bathsheba, the queen. We don't think of it. No one said queen when we talked about Bathsheba. Uh, I'll read it for us. This is 1 Kings 1, 11 through 31. Nathan, the prophet Nathan, Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Did you hear that Adonijah, Haggith's son, has become king, but our master David doesn't know about it? Let me give you some advice on how you and your son Solomon can survive this. She's back in survival mode. Go to King David and say, Didn't my master the king swear to your servant, Your son Solomon will certainly rule after me. He will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are speaking there with the king, I'll come along and support your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his bedroom. The king was very old, and Abishag from uh, Shinim was serving the king. Bathsheba bowed down on her face before the king. The king asked, what do you want? She said to him, your majesty, you swore by the Lord your God To your servant, your son Solomon will certainly rule after me. He will sit on my throne. But now look, Adonijah has become king, and my master, the king, doesn't know about it. He has prepared large quantities of oxen, fattened cattle, and lamb. He has invited all the royal princes, as well as Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the general. However, he didn't invite your servant Solomon. As for you, my master, the king, the eyes of all Israel are upon you to tell them who will follow you on the throne of my master, the king. When my master, the king, lies down with his ancestors, then I and my son Solomon will become outlaws. While she was still speaking with the king, the prophet Nathan arrived. The king was informed, the prophet Nathan is here. Then Nathan came in before the king and bowed his face to the ground. He said, my master, the king, you must have said Adonijah will become the king after me and will sit on my throne. Indeed, today he went down and prepared oxen, fattened cattle, and lamb in large numbers. He invited all the royal princes, the generals, and Abiathar, the priests. They are eating and drinking with him, and they said, long live King Adonijah. Adonijah didn't invite me, your servant, Zadok the priest, Jehoiada's son, uh, Benaniah, or your servant Solomon. If this message was from my master, the king, you didn't make it known to your servant. Who should follow you on the throne of my master, the king? King David answered, Bring me Bathsheba. She came and stood before the king. The king made a solemn pledge and said, As surely as the Lord lives, who rescued me from every trouble regarding what I swore to you by the Lord Israel's God, Your son Solomon will certainly succeed me. He will sit on the throne after me. I'll see that it happens today. Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground. She honored the king and said, May my master, King David, live forever.
This is the word of the Lord. In, in all that narrative, and maybe that was hard to follow, I'd encourage you, if it was, to go back and, and read more of it. It's intriguing how, how fast it moves, and we get these, these peak ends to the, the throne room and, and, the, and these conversations that are happening uh, with the king. But what I was struck with all of that is, is Bathsheba's quintessential kind of in-betweenness. The, her whole life is a primer on how to continue the story when you get thrust into something that you never signed up for. The, fear, the sheer fact that she's known in Jesus' family tree, essentially with a line struck through who she was, who, who she was is canceled out, and then the undeniable fact of who she came to be, a mother twice over linked to Israel's Messiah, says something about her. She's not only Solomon's mom, but her son Nathan was in Mary's line, so we, we see kind of all these uh, things are converging for her to be a part of what God is doing and bringing Jesus to us. She stuck in between the life she had charted out and the life she had meted out to her. She's drawn out between a life of many sorrows and a life of palatial power and purpose. She, she now has a title. She's not just that woman on the roof. She's the queen mother. Late in David's life in today's scripture, we find more of the same. She's stuck right in the middle of a rebellion. Adonai, one of David's other wives' sons, has a claim to David's throne not nearly as strong as Solomon's, and he's trying to usurp it. He sees his dad weak and aged, and he's, he's trying to make it happen for himself. He gathered a coalition that would help him rise to power, including some pretty heavy hitter political and religious people, some muscle, some horsepower, and he starts the feasting. Surely they won't turn this back. This is almost his kind of special session that he called to try to push this thing through. And then Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, didn't you hear what's going on? Didn't you hear that Adoniah became king without you knowing? You need to go to David, and you need to make your son Solomon what he is, the rightful heir of the king. Again, she's thrust between. She now goes between Nathan and David, and remember she was always kind of between Nathan and David. The last time we got Psalm 51 when David confessed to, to what he did to Bathsheba. And Nathan was the one that sprung the trap telling parables about a, a shepherd that, that doesn't treat his sheep very well. Nathan comes to Bathsheba and sends her to David. She goes to David in his bedroom to advocate for what's right and to continue that one continuous line, weak and broken in some areas that Solomon might carry on the promise. She gets to David and she falls on her face. She cuts, and then David just cuts to the chase. He says, what do you want, Bathsheba? 
Then she tells him exactly what she wants, exactly what's going on, exactly what shouldn't be happening under David's nose. And I think she can do this because of her advantage as this in-between person. From where she stands, she can see it. She can read the power play and thread of Adoniah. She can see the urgency for David to set this right before his kingdom falls apart. She can see clearly what this would mean for her and Solomon. They'd be on the run because no one wants someone that has a better, uh, better reason to be king just hanging around, right? This is pretty desperate. She is on the verge of being eliminated from David's story. When David brings Bathsheba back in after a consultation with Nathan, he says, As surely as the Lord lives who rescued me from every trouble regarding what I swore to you by the Lord Israel's God, your son Solomon will be king. David agrees with her. Let it be so. Bathsheba's nerve and advocacy for her son contributed to the following generation of unprecedented wealth and reign for her son Solomon, the union of the two kingdoms. If her husband David, David often gets described as the man after God's own heart. If David was a man after God's own heart, her son Solomon was a man kind of with with God's own wit. Like from Solomon we get the Proverbs, we, we get this unprecedented, wise ruler that is, even as a king for Israel isn't ideal, it's about as good as they could hope for. He's lauded for his wisdom. He solves problems when people come, and he judges justly. I can't help but think that those Proverbs were as much of a byproduct of Bathsheba's tense and tested metal as, as David's in his life. So during this Advent adventure that we've been on, we've, we've dove into these women's stories with the purpose of hearing our own stories a little bit better. The story of Jesus a little bit better. This journey to the manger in Bethlehem to make room for and adore the newborn king of the world is one in which we must continue to understand and negotiate our own in-betweenness our own discomfort. Advent is that time between the times. We should feel a little, dis- a little uncomfortable there. When we feel that tension between Jesus' first coming and we hope and we, we long for and we say, oh, come, Emmanuel, for a second coming, we take cues from how God chose to come to us in human form and how he was received or wasn't so we can kind of interpolate what we should be hoping for. If we're, if we're hoping for Jesus to come again, it, it behooves us to, to try to put ourselves in the headspace of those who are expecting Jesus to come the first time and to learn from that and to hope for justice, to hope for peace, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We live in this pregnant pause, this spirit-groaning hope for renewal amidst the sin-scarred, good-but-broken creation of which we're a part. We know that so well if we just pause long enough to take inventory. 
Some of us feel this in-betweenness every day. Perhaps like Bathsheba, it feels like you woke up into a life that you would not have chosen for yourself. You never thought that that relationship would go so bad or cause that much hurt. You never thought you'd have this much job insecurity or, or financial instability at this point in your life. Maybe your 30s isn't all it's cracked up to be. Nate, is it? It's good so far? Yeah. So far. <laughs> but, but, may, but maybe that life is not adventurous enough. It's not how you thought you'd be at this point, right? Maybe you struggle with a sin that has a hold of you, and you can't even remember how it got a hold of you. You can't remember what it felt like to be free, and you can't explain why that appeals so much to you. Maybe you're just angry. Like, maybe if you stop long enough, you default to anger or to sadness or to depression or to loneliness. And you forgot how that started and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you feel the most in between during these trying times when when you've been doing all the right things, you've been hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and it just seems like a pipe dream so that you should just settle for kind of the junk food of something more realistic. But I think we, we inherit from Bathsheba, and we inherit a, an ability to, to stay and to be and to flourish in this in-betweenness. Maybe we also inherit and learn from Bathsheba just an ability to know how and to know when to just fall exactly on our face before the king. Like, I think that's a beautiful part of this narrative. And, and, and it's, it's part of royal protocol, but it, that, that it's included in the story that Bathsheba got before David and she just fell on her face. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to learn that and relearn that. Maybe that's the best homework for the end of this last week of Advent is, is to learn how to fall on our face and worship before the king and not King David, but King Jesus, who we sing all these amazing songs about, right? Like we, we're teasing upstairs, like whoever this, this guy or lady traditional is writes really amazing songs about Jesus, right? This, this whole font of these amazing songs about this king, this king that's coming, this king who was born into vulnerability so he knows our vulnerability, this king that bore our weakness in new death, even death on a cross, and understands our fear and our sorrow. This is a king who sits at the right hand of the Father, even now, praying for us. When we pray in the name of Jesus, it's because Jesus prays for us. So we cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. We don't have a king, and we don't have a high priest who can't empathize who doesn't identify with us, so we boldly approach the throne of grace and we expect mercy. But here's the good news, too, that we don't have to even go to the throne. We don't have to 
travel to some far off place because the good news of Advent, the thing that we rehearse and we hope for at Christmas is that God comes to us. Amen? Like, God comes to us. God has met us. God promises to continue to meet us right in that in-between space of our lives. Like, right in that spot, like, this is a good time for our students. Like, you're, one semester's over, another semester hasn't started. You don't have nothing to do. Technically, you're not even a student right now because students study, and you're not studying. You're in this in-between spot. You don't even maybe know who you are. Maybe that's the best thing for some of you guys. But in this in-between time, that is when God meets us. It's in this place of discomfort, this place of discontent that God sees and hears and knows us. It's in that the, the places in our lives of deep insecurity, of deep incapacity that God is with us and is for us. It's exactly through fragile, real people acting in desperation like Bathsheba that God brings this unshakable kingdom in Christ Jesus. It's through people like Bathsheba looking around and realizing that whether or not they ever imagine they'd be where they are, they have been brought into God's promises and can participate in his plan for renewal. That you and I and Christ can not only stand in and survive this gap, this place of tension, but we can thrive here. Like when we read in the Bible about uh, the valley, and, and, and again, we, we, if I pulled the audience, we'd think of Psalm 23 in this valley of the shadow of death, but the valley is also where you can live and where you can cultivate and where you can grow things. That's, that's why the shepherd's there is because that's where the grass is for a sheep. That's where they live. So we can not only survive here, but we can thrive here, sustained in our straining towards redemption and hope, even when it feels all for naught, even when it feels hopeless, even when it feels scarce. It means that we'll keep having to answer that question that David asked Bathsheba. What do you want? Rather than filling in the blank with some old answer that we always imagine, Let's lean into what God's doing in new and courageous ways. This week, walk with that question. Don't answer it right away. That question, what do you want? Don't answer it right away. Let that sit with you. Let that soak on you. Let, let, that, let that bother you because most of the time we walk around, we don't even know what we want. Then let it spark for you a desire for Christ to enter into our world, into your world. Let it spark in you an awareness to recognize him all around. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins writes that Christ plays in 10,000 places. That means everywhere we look, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we can see him at work. And most of the time we walk around completely ignorant of that. What do you want this week? What do you want? If we can answer that question, it might help us be more present as we walk around. It might, as we enter into this final 
week of Advent, help our prayers to consider the ways like Bathsheba we might have our hopes and our loves, our desires more tuned towards the expectation that God is going to show up and God is going to come through. That Christ meets us in the in-between and holds us together. Even and especially when we feel lost and lonely. And that the Spirit is going to continue this surprising work of renewing us. Of changing our hearts. Of opening us up to God. Of healing our brokenness. And that's what, we, that's what we're praying. That's what we're saying when we say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God, with us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these stories. They remind us over and over of, of how people open up their lives to you. And pray that 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 happened this week. And it doesn't just happen, Lord. We pray that we put ourselves in a position for that to happen. That's our expectation. That's our hope. Even if it messes our plans up. Even if it shifts what we're hoping for or what we envisioned. We invite you into that. We give you permission for that. Lord, use this body to help in that process. And we might have deep friendships that can speak into each other's lives and say, I think I see what God's doing here. I think I see it better than you, and, and let me be your eyes to help you know. Or, I think I see what God's doing in this, in this hurt, and he wants to heal it. Just let him. Help us learn how to do that. Help us be committed to each other to do that, to offer that and to receive it. Above all, let us expect your work in our lives. Expect that you're continuing to draw us into this abundant life that you've made possible in Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.